Great. So let me begin by asking you, just a few people, what is your favorite season? And uh, I'll be teaching from a, a classical poem, ancient Zen poem. But uh, I thought this would be a really good theme, a very timely theme, because we've had a long, kind of cold spring, right? And it's just burst forth into, you know, sort of green and warm glory recently. So uh, what is your favorite, just tell me, what, your, what is your favorite season and why? Just a couple people. Summer, because it's longer days. Longer days, more sun. Okay, great. What else? Anybody else? Spring because everything's new. Excellent. Spring. I could show a show of hands. <laughs> Spring. Summer. The dead of the dead of winter. One person but you are, you had spring too. He's very advanced. We'll we'll get to him. We'll get to him. How about fall? Great. Okay, good. So this is a poem from Wu Men, who was a 11th, 12th century Chinese Zen, uh, Zen master. 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. If your mind is not clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. So in this talk, what I hope to do is explore this notion of, well, what is clouded by unnecessary things, and then what can insight meditation, what can it teach us to make every season the best season of our life? Now, the best season also doesn't mean we don't have favorites. <laughs> so we can have favorites, but also every season can be the best. So one level is that unnecessary things are all the the ways that our thought, and I'll go through a list of some of the ways this happens, our thought and all of the associated emotions, sensations, kind of clusters, how they cloud our minds. And in the ancient meditative language, heart and mind are of one, the word is chitta, so it's not a separation. Okay, it's not just brain and emotion. It's the fullness of this inner life. So what are some ways that, from a Buddhist point of view, from the teachings of the Buddha, uh, what, what, clouds, what clouds the mind and heart? Well, the Buddha, to put it in more sort of classical terms, the Buddha taught a very simple path of suffering and, also, uh, and the end of suffering, or suffering that's optional, Suffering that's not optional. Okay? So suffering that's optional and we still suffer, that's clouding. So what are ways that we do this? 
So uh, one teaching that's very good on this is the two arrows. And that's the story of, that the Buddha gave of a man who was shot by an arrow or a dart. And he was laying in a field, bleeding. And if he didn't deal with it skillfully, he would eventually bleed to death. So he's bleeding, and he had friends that were over a grassy knoll, but they couldn't see him. And what did he do? Well, instead of calling to his friends or even trying to work with the arrow and get it out, see if he could work on it himself, he just lay there, frozen, in anger. He kept thinking, who shot this? How dare they? I'm going to get them back. All the while, he's bleeding, and he would eventually bleed to death if he didn't get help. So this is a teaching on how we get shot by something in life that we don't like, but then we don't work skillfully to, to work with the situation as best we can. What we do is we add, and it's the two arrows. He, so this man was adding a second arrow on top of his suffering, which is, was his inner reactivity that didn't do any good in the situation. And often in our lives, it's not just the second arrow, but it's the third and the fourth and the fifth. And, you know, we could, we could, we could go, uh, we could spend years, couldn't we? When we've been harmed or wrong, something's gone wrong, just shooting ourselves. It doesn't do any good. So that's one way of clouding. The second way, another example is a little more mundane. Um, it's when we get in planning mind, and then we've already planned through, like our action for the next day or our list or whatever, and maybe we've written it down, and then our mind keeps going over again and again and again. How many people suffer from obsessive planning mind? <laughs> and how many people lose sleep over it sometimes? Sometimes. Okay, good. It's not good. <laughs> it's good if you can see it. So that is all what we would call, not planning, but all the extra. All the knowing, hey, I actually thought this through. It's all done. I even wrote it down. I can just let it go. But our minds don't. So the mind, again, is unclouded in this situation by unnecessary things. Another way this shows up and we could, these are just some examples you could think of many, many ways, is our relationship to thinking itself and how we, how we fall in love with thinking, sometimes to the detriment of actually learning. So we think about it. And it, it, it works quite, there's a quite a direct relationship in this path of, of meditation, of insight meditation, mindfulness, etc., which is all about clear, present moment seeing, right? So how much are we fascinated by thinking and questioning around it? Uh, sometimes at the expense of doing it. So sometimes I ask students, I say, do you spend more time, newer students, but also not just newer students, do you spend more time reading, and it's beds, often bedside, bedtime, but it doesn't have to be, reading about practice or practicing? So if you give the wrong answer, it's a telltale sign. And I did this when I went to, um, I went to Japan about over maybe 32, 33 years ago uh, to study Zen. And I studied for about six months. One of the places I worked was a place called uh, Daitokuji, a very famous monastery in Kyoto. And there was a, a famous teacher there who spoke English. So I, I went and 
I worked with him. His name was Kabori Roshi. And I had so many questions. I was fresh out of college, and I was all full of him and vigor and questions and excited about Zen. So I kept asking him and asking him questions. And one time, he just, he, he just turned and he looked at me like kind of fiercely and said, are you here to ask about and question about Zen, or are you here to practice? I didn't have a good answer then. I can, well, let me think about that. <laughs> so, um, the final story in this vein is uh, a professor goes to Zen master and asks him, have you heard this story before? He wants to ask him questions about Zen. He's interested in practicing. So he, 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 the, the Zen master sits down with him and says, great, let's have a cup of tea. And the professor starts explaining himself about what he's interested in and notions of the Heart Sutra and non-dualism and this and that and direct present moment experience. And so he's, he's, he's forming his questions and his philosophy around it. And, and as, as he's doing that, the, the Zen master is pouring tea. And he fills the cup, two-thirds, three-quarters, all the way up. And he keeps pouring. And it rolls over onto the tatami mat floor. And the professor stops. He stops thinking for a second. He says, what are you doing? He said, what I just did, pouring, this is like your mind. This is like your heart. It's over full. And when it's over full, how can you, how can, how can, there, be, how can, how can there be anything good put in there? How can, how can there be any space, any freedom? So my own Zen master in a different monastery where I, I stayed, um, did much more intensive practice, used to say this to me. He said, you've got to empty your heart. You've got to learn to empty your heart and your mind. Then something useful can come out of that. And if you've studied the teachings before, well, what, what are the essence of, of, of what we teach and practice? And there's, a, there's wisdom and compassion. Right? Inner and outer kindness and clarity. But how do we touch that if we're so full? So Wu Men is saying this, clouded. So the practice of insight is really to learn how to uncloud our hearts and minds and to skillfully work with the content and see what is actually clouding at the expense of being present in a fresh, clear way, a good season, and what's not. So insight meditation is the journey of what we might call calming and steadying the heart and the mind and seeing clearly into experience in a way that shifts our relationship and liberates us. Or shamatha vipassana. So how many people here work when they meditate, bring their attention to the breath to get a little calm and clarity or to the body? Okay, or sound. Or just the senses in general seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, just coming into the immediacy of the moment. Good. In a way that is separate from thought. And especially, most people raise their hand for the breath, breath in the body. So in the classical training of mindfulness, this is coming into the body and the breath is an aspect of the body, is the first foundation of mindfulness. It's what we come to. And when we cultivate it over, over time, we learn to step out of thought. All these different ways that we can cloud our minds with an unnecessary and unskillful thought and all of the ways that it gets sticky with emotion and 
you know, if it's a positive fantasy, then it's a pleasant experience, and if it's a, a negative, negative loop, then it's unpleasant, right? So it learns to step out of that whole game and be nourished. So it's the mindful pause. And in the, the calming and steadying practice, it goes all the way from just simple mindful pauses that we can take throughout the day. How many people do that regularly? You actually, throughout the day, you'll pause and you'll take a mindful breath or you'll be walking somewhere and you really, instead of picking up your phone or you'll feel a few footsteps just consciously. Or when you get in your car and you go to drive it, you'll spend a bit of time maybe really feeling your hands on the wheel or your feet. Not so many do that, okay. <laughs> or when you drive for a little while, maybe not putting any, anything on. No sound, so you're just with it. So there's many ways that we can actually just come into the immediacy of the moment. And it's great to have these mindful pauses. And how many people have a, have a, a, a daily setting practice? Okay, good. By the way, how many people are totally new? Anybody totally new? Okay, I hope this is educational in terms of getting a foundation of what we're doing here too. Okay, great, great. So learning to step outside of thought and be nourished and being present can go all the way from mindful pauses all the way up to if you do longer retreats or you have a propensity for this to getting really, really focused and concentrated in a way where other experience, so we're watching the breath, it fades completely away or it's just not, it's not important and we're really, really, really calm. So thoughts are either don't exist in these moments where they're, they're not a problem, right? So that's one aspect of not clouded by unnecessary things. Learn to calm and steady the heart and the mind. But the heart of Buddha's teachings is not to get rid of thought. Of course not. Are we trying to be kind of like mindfulness automatons? You know what I mean? I am mindful. I am present. You'd have to walk like this. You'd have to move like this. <laughs> Is that, does anyone have an idealization that you wouldn't think? Or you just have clarity all the time and you just know what to do? Uh, if, you were, if you were really fully awake and present? No one suffers from that delusion. Good. So at the heart of it, the heart of the Buddhist teachings is is really in its practical value to change our relationship to thought, and again, thought, emotion, and sensations that are associated, to actually learn to have a more skillful relationship to it. So developmentally, there are four foundations of mindfulness, not just one. It's not just calming and steadying through, say, being with the breath. But it actually has a... Second foundation, which is learning to work with pleasant, unpleasant, just the, the kind of the, or neutrality, this underlying quality that we have throughout our day, mental and physical experience. And the third foundation is actually working directly with our thoughts or the content of our minds and our hearts. So it can include moods and emotions, images, etc. But there's a reason, this is sort of my, my theory, I haven't you know, said this written out, there's a reason why I think it's the third foundation and not the first. Because what happens when you start to try to look at thought often? Uh, we think about it. Or we, we don't have really much capacity just to see thought as we'd see a breath. Because there's identification, right? 
in a very different way. It's not naturally neutral for us. But as our practice progresses, and if our interest is natural, then there's a sense of moving back and forth. And how many people have experienced this in your practice, where you work with, you work with anchoring your attention, but then over time, you start to be able to bring in a fuller sense of being with pleasure, discomfort, and even, even thoughts. Just, you start to be able to see them more clearly. How many people have that? Have that as a natural aspect. Good, good. So that's a progression, and often we have to move back and forth, don't we? Right? So if we open it up and we start to look with thought, and then we start thinking about thought, uh, okay, I need to ground and steady, right? So that's how, it dev- that's how the four foundations of mindfulness, how we can work with them and develop a much fuller sense where thoughts are included. And so we can start to change our relationship to thinking, and again, I'm just saying thinking, but it's also, it often includes the emotion and the, the physical or, or the pleasure or discomfort as well. It's like a cluster. Um, and when we start to be able to work directly with thoughts, then we start to have a skillful relationship with them. So one way that this happens is that we can start to say to thoughts that are coming in, uh, it, but we're aware of them. We can sort of start to say, not now. And it's actually very natural to have an ability to do this. It's not even, we all, we all have it. It's, an, it's, it's natural. It's not, you know, you don't have to train so hard in doing this. Let's say you, you're planning on going and taking out the, the garbage. That's your thought. And then uh, your kid calls you, and so that's more important. You just put that thought aside, don't you? You can just, there's a lot of thoughts we can just put aside because they're not that sticky. It's like, no, not now, not now. So it's a natural capacity to do this. But it's much more difficult to do this when we have strong compulsions, addictions, isn't it? So I got to have that thing. (laughs) Or I've got to get rid of this. And then we get stuck. We get stuck in the thought, the emotion, the feeling, and it spins around and around. So I'll give an example of um, how dealing with seeing thought I was able to work with this an example of uh, a compulsion that I worked with skillfully. I just have this strong memory of when I was, um, I think it was 1987, I think it was about, or maybe 1990, so about 25, 30 years ago. Uh, I was in Sri Lanka, and I was working with a, a wonderful uh, German monk. His name was Nyana Ponika Thera. And by the way, his book, which I think was published in 1962, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, is still, I think, one of the real classics on uh, introductory books on meditation. That's a long time ago, because that's my birth year. I'm 54, so that's, that's, that's good, huh? We think this stuff's all modern. Actually, that's not that long ago, is it? Huh? It's in terms of 2,600 years, not too long, but still. So um, I was going up. I was going up. You walk up. It was in Candy, is it, at, uh, a city up country or a town. And uh, I was walking up. You, you had a hermitage up on a hill. And there was, my, there was a sweet shop I really loved. And I'd stop in there sometime. But one day, I was going up, and... I really just said, no, I'm just going to go take the teachings. If I want to go there on the way back, I, I can. Uh, but I, I really don't want to go. But as I got closer, the compulsion to go inside and get something, I had my favorite suite, was really strong. You ever had those? Like really strong. And I just remember feeling, I've got to go. And it was a tug of war. I've got to, it's, sim- it's a simple example. We have these all the time, right? I've got to go in there and get that in my mind and in my feelings and my craving. Ah, now we get into craving the mind that wanted. It's all catching up on thoughts and believing, I've got to have this. And then the other side was like, no, you don't. You actually, why are you here? You, 
Why did you travel halfway around the world to get Sri Lankan sweets or to work with a living master hmm? who speaks your language? Hmm? Which one? Eh, I think I'll go for the sweets. No, you won't. <laughs> Keep going. So my resolution was on that day was to just see that tug of war and then I shifted and put my attention very strongly in my feet. So I went to the first foundation of mindfulness and I walked. And it was kind of like in a, a, a clinic epic movie or something when there's some, I don't know, like some fog or that doesn't end and you just walk and you know if you're going to fall off the end of the earth or it's like step by step. You ever heard that feeling? Like you just, you just so, it's such a struggle. But it was. But I just kept putting my, being a little dramatic, but uh, I kept putting one foot on the ground and I got through it. And then as I got further away from the sweet shop, the desire and all the thoughts associated with it, they faded. And I realized, okay, I wouldn't have been able to make that decision and make that choice if I hadn't actually seen clearly what was happening. If I hadn't actually had enough, because then I would have been already in the door. We know how many times that happens, right? We have uh, something a little bit emotionally that's difficult, and where are we? We're halfway through that pint of Ben and Jerry's. Do they they still have Cherry Garcia? Yeah, or whatever it is, right? We don't, because we don't catch it. So that's saying there's not enough awareness of how our mind is actually functioning. So we have that, we have a a better... uh, Ability to make choice. It helps us to keep our priorities straight. So what this helps us to do when we start to be able to see our thoughts and all the associated energies of wanting and not wanting. Thank you. Okay. Whoa. Was that an enlightenment experience? (laughs) Oh, wait, that comes from the inside. Sorry. <laughs> is, is how we can start to kind of use thought when our present moment awareness gets stronger, but not be used by thought. So that means when we're used by it, we just believe it. And all the energies, all the things it's telling us to do, we don't have a relationship. We don't have perspective. We don't have choice. So when our mindfulness is more established, we get more of that. And as it gets much stronger, then we really start to feel and experience that there are actually two kinds of intelligence. And one is based on past and future, is based on accumulation of knowledge, it's based on thinking. But there's another kind of intelligence which is really based on uh, the training and situating our attention in the present moment with sensitivity, and being actually able to see, to see clearly from that place. Ajahn Buddhadasa, who is uh, a great Thai teacher, he, um, he said famously once, at least as far as I'm concerned, because it's a deep teaching for me, that if we didn't have little moments throughout the day when we were not caught up in thinking and getting, believing our thoughts, like the mind being filled with thoughts, then at a certain level, we'd actually couldn't stay sane. And if you, you look, whenever we get really overwhelmed by something, 
we're totally caught in it. Right? There's no space. There's no other aspect of being present. There's no other aspect that we can go to when we're really stuck, right? It's the definition of being stuck. So as, as mindfulness grows, then there's a level of intelligence that comes from clear seeing and then being able to respond from that place. But our lives are really, and one reason I think that mindfulness is taken off is that uh, there's, more, there's, there's a more of a sense of value in this. We've been trained 99.999% of our time to cultivate, especially in a place like Cambridge, to cultivate a certain kind of intelligence. And maybe that's why some of you are here, because you realize there's a lot of intelligence, but there's also some places where that intelligence isn't so intelligent. <laughs> so we're learning to actually, and an analogy that I like is like, uh, it's like our life is like a train, and there's two train tracks, you know, all, all the wheels go along them. And one side is our capacity to think and to use the past and the future and plan effectively and be creative and all, all the ways that, that thought is just incredible, okay? But the other one is the ability to actually be present and have perspective and have another place where we actually are anchor and strong and have foundation and that they work together. And if we get too out of balance, I mean, if we're just, right, if we were just mindfulness automatons, we wouldn't have a full life, and if we were just thought and didn't have the capacity to be present and perceive clearly and step out, what happens then? Okay, so I, I just like that because I find that there's kind of a Dharma track and there's a worldly track and that they, they can really, they can work together very, very well. So it's not a, it's not a conflict. There's another analogy that's given that um, uh, thinking is a great servant, but a, uh, a cruel master. If we just believe in our thoughts, and especially if our thoughts are caught up in wanting and aversion and not seeing clearly, that's unexamined, that there's tremendous cost. And if we look at the world and we look at the messes in our lives, we know this. It's like the human race hasn't learned somehow. Because we think and we identify so much, and our thoughts are so fueled by underlying qualities of just very basic wanting, not wanting, identifying. I mean, look around. <laughs> it's crazy. Is it a little bit crazy? I think it's, cra it's crazy. And if I look at my own life, what I see and how, how I get reactive and bound up around little things. It's crazy in here, too. So it's not just in Washington. It's not. Uh, there are extreme examples occurring, right? And so, but actually, in one, and this is not about politics at all, but from a Dharma point of view, what's actually happening is a tremendous expression of this. It's run amok it, it, at a certain level. So it's an expression of something. You could say it's, it's an expression of a certain unchecked and balanced thought getting caught up in belief and identification and us and that, all of it. So that can be, this can be studied and looked at. And so 
what does it mean if it's, if it's a, a great servant but a cruel master? When we make it the master, we make messes. So what is it serving? And the heart of the Buddha's teachings is to understand the power of the mind. And at the, the opening line of the Dhammapada, this is ancient classic uh, teaching, is that the mind is the forerunner of all creation or all things. With a mind that has kindness and clarity, happiness follows, as sure as the shadow follows the ox cart. And a mind that is clouded, that doesn't see clearly, that is bound up in anger and wanting, selfish wanting, not seeing clearly, suffering follows in the same way, just as the shadow will follow the ox cart. It's lawful. And so in the, the Dharma, the service has to be, and we can use our intention to, ch- to touch in with this, of clarity and of kindness. So that non-harming, of trying to work with that as best we can. So forming an underlying intention around that. And this is one quality that separates sometimes Dharma from secular mindfulness. Because secular mindfulness is just being present and that can be done in the service of secular, whatever value you put on it. So, uh, and it can be the same. You can just get calm and from that clarity it helps you to be kind and to be wiser. It could be because there's not an underlying motivational structure. It could be, well, you could, you could train in mindfulness to be a great robber. And I don't mean Robin Hood robber. <laughs> to give. Uh, you could train to be a great murderer because you're really present, but you're doing it to harm, right? So we have to look at ourselves and find out what, what is motivating us. I'm not saying you should have any particular motivation, but knowing, knowing motivation is very important. And knowing our mind, having a relationship with our mind, based on seeing clearly what's in it, is the first step to this. So the deepest level of insight, we change our relationship to thought and to the things which we might, in the first analysis of what our practice does, it gets us away from thinking right? Just mindful pauses. And then we have a skillful relationship with thought. But at a very deep level, we can see into, and this is the shamatha, this is the vipassana part, which means special, clear seeing. Actually see into the nature of thought, of mood, emotion, reactivity, clinging, in a way that leads us to touch a potential in our heart and our mind that is radically free. So how does this work? To actually transform our hearts and minds by directly looking at thought, seeing into it. Krishnamurti, who's uh, one of Larry, everyone know Larry Rosenberg? One of his favorite teachers, and I actually spent um, many months in South India even before I, um, and Larry was my main trainer, my main mentor, and he's a very, very dear friend. Um, even before I knew Larry, I used to go to the Krishnamurti Foundation because I loved his teachings. They were just very direct, clear. And he says, if you can understand the whole movement of thought, it has tremendous significance. And significance for the quality of your life. Tremendous significance. 
So when we come and study the heart and the mind and then we start to see into, then what do we see? And in a classic frame of Buddhism, we start to, in the teachings, we start to see into the nature of experience. And it's, it's called the three characteristics, which means that you start to see things change. Because your mind, it's simple. Your mind is steadier. Your present moment is so steadier so you can see in a way where it's not, you're not doing anything with it. Experience is just as it is. This includes everything. It also includes very deeply our thought. So we see change. We can start to see into the fact that things we thought were really solid aren't so solid. If you ever, if there's one thought that's hounding you, you can uh, try to, instead of trying to run from it and get mindful, separate from it, every once in a while just look at it and say, okay, bring it on. Come here, come on, come on, stay. I've done it many, many times. It gets very shy. So what is it showing? It's not as solid. It's not as fixed as we think it is. It's another arising and passing phenomenon. It has cause and effects. It arises and passes. And it's not, it's not fixed. It's not even who we are. We often land on a thought and identify. But that shifts and changes. Conditions change, we land on another thought. Right? So it's saying that when we see, we start to see into this because we're present, because we're curious. We just see. That's that wisdom. That's the wisdom of not thought, present moment. And the last wave of transformation is that we see, um, we see into suffering. We see into the, it's often the heat and the clinging. And when we do that, and we can really see, it's like awareness, often awareness is very small and objects are very big, like anger or fear. But when awareness gets stronger, then either... It doesn't get overpowered, and sometimes it just sees, it sees into. And so how many people have had the experience that something that you were really suffering about, some real deep suffering, actually led you, it gave you the energy for a deeper transformation and touching a deeper place of peace than you would have if you weren't challenged by that? How many people have that? So mo- well more than half the room have clear memories of that. So that's very important because that's seeing into suffering as a gateway to actually touching something that's, that if we didn't have it, we wouldn't go deep. It, we're touching a different quality of resource in our heart and our mind. So this points to the level of freedom, which is called sometimes the nature of mind. We see into the nature of experience, changing, shifting, moving, not quite as solid, we, allow, we have enough strength to see through things that are really difficult. It's a way to opening. And then we touch a quality of the heart and the mind that is fundamentally larger. So one thing Joseph Goldstein, who was a, I think he, he was, uh, my teacher's on a number of retreats I did out at IMS. He might have been on the 1987 three-month retreat about 30 years ago, or one of, the earl, one of the earlier, longer retreats I did out there. I remember in being in an interview, and he said, you know, as your practice matures, because I had some little opening or something, I don't know, something had happened, uh, then you're energetic, energetically, just naturally, you hold more and more and more experience. You can do that naturally. Because we're not so fixed. It's just not, it, you see into, and then you start to touch the capacity of heart and mind that is fundamentally larger, more open. So Sharon Salzberg, also one of my teachers, um, she has a whole book called The Heart as Wide as the World. <laughs> what is that? Can you imagine a heart that's seen so deeply that it's 
It's open so widely. It's wide as the world. And it really means our, it means our experience, the fullness of our experience. There's a, a, a woman, a nun from the early Theravada, this tradition, who, when she had an enlightenment experience, she described it, I guess she was like going to sleep one night and she blew out a candle. And as she blew it out, her mind just got extraordinarily, I don't know, she, she had an awakening experience. And her, what came to her was that no part of her was left out. So think about that. What would that be like if your heart and your mind was so big that nothing in your experience was left out? What does this mean? Isn't there a radical freedom in that? That means thoughts are welcome as well. So Ajahn Chah says, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. And if you really let go completely, there's complete peace. So does this, is this a kind of letting go of something, throwing it out in light of what we've heard? Or is this a letting go into? It is. <laughs> it's letting go into our life. Dogen Zenji, one of the great Zen masters of Japan, puts it, he said that intimacy is awakening. But it's intimacy with life with full presence, being fully awake. And I like to think of it as intimacy, because it's more my experience. It's obviously not like his. Um, Intimacy, real clear intimacy, interest, but also with a sense of spaciousness or perspective. So that's that wideness. Okay? So I want to end with a couple of stories. Um, when I, was a, when I was a monk, so this goes back to the original question, and the question becomes a little more profound. What, I, what is it that clouds the mind and the heart? So um, when, I was, uh, when I was a monk in Thailand, in, I was in some forest monasteries, and one of the things you did there was you, you had a little kuti or a, a little building where you meditated in the forest, and then you had a little track, a walking track. And if you go back and forth, maybe 20 or 30 pace a little a little dirt track, and you'd sweep it from time to time in the day, or maybe once a day or twice a day. You'd sweep it off. Uh, and in, the, in those forests, the leaves are always falling. It's not like just one season. And so you have to, at least, at least when I was there, they were, were falling. And I've heard it, they fall year-round. Uh, and so you have to sweep. And even as you get to one end sometime of the track, you know, I want to get this nice, clear track <laughs> so I can walk, no leaves, they're already starting to fall on the other side. And I remember I, I kind of got frustrated by this. I was like, hey, I already, did, I already cleared this out. Give me a break. Come on. Just hold back the leaves for a little while. Let me just do. So I wasn't so wise. I wanted it just to be the way I wanted it. But Ajahn Chah, who I had the good fortune of meditating with when he was still alive, did have wisdom. He wrote, Our lives are like the breath, like the growing and falling leaves. So this same story is told in a different version in, uh, in, in a book called The Still Forest, uh, uh, Still Forest Pool. Our lives are like the breath, like the growing and falling leaves. When we can really understand about falling leaves, 
We can sweep the pads every day and have great happiness in our lives on this changing earth. So what was the difference between Ajahn Chah, the great master, and me, the young idealistic monk who got frustrated? And what does this have to do with Wu Men? Well, if I had been sweeping the leaves in my heart and my mind, as I was sweeping the outer leaves, if I had been watching my heart and my mind, then I would have realized that my reactivity, my relationship to this actual activity of sweeping was my practice. All right? And that's what Ajahn Chah was saying. When we can really understand about falling leaves, falling leaves, that's the stuff of our life. All the stuff. Everything that happens in relationship, everything that happens to our bodies, everything that happens in the world that affects us, that affects our, our minds, our hearts. Those are the falling leaves. When we can sweep the pads every day. So this is an analogy of when we can really bring our full care and attention, when we can make everything in our life, everything in our life, a mirror for our awakening. Everything. And this also points back to the tremendous significance that Krishnamurti was saying it has, if you can understand, if you can really see how your thoughts are moving. It has tremendous significance. Because we're moving in relationship with our reactions, aren't we? Our opinions, our judgments. So if we can really see this, if we can really have intimacy and use relationship in all of its forms, inside and out, as a mirror for present moment awareness, what does this leave us with? So let's close our eyes for a minute, and I'll read the first poem again. Ten thousand flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. And I'll add thoughts, silence sorrow, joy. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, if we're intimate with the exact materials of our life, and don't turn away from them to wake us up. This is the best season of our lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.